0: Welcome to Meadowbrook
1: Church, leading people into the Christ Center life. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 today. You can meet me there, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Grab your Bibles or your phones or your devices. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 1159 in that Bible. We've been going through a series called Living for Eternity. We're going to wrap this up next week. And we've been talking about the fact that we will, as followers of Jesus, live for eternity. We are eternal beings created by an eternal God. And one way or another, we will live for eternity. And yet, we're also talking about what that means for us. As we uh, don't always necessarily have an eternal uh, worldview or an eternal mindset. Because we just get so caught up in this life and everything that's going on in this life, which is understandable. But we're talking about how do we live for eternity in terms of living with an eternal mindset so we live for eternity now here on earth. And our challenge has come from 2 Peter 3.11, which says, In light of Jesus' return, in light of heaven and hell, in light of final judgment, in light of reward or not, uh, what kind of people ought we be? How is that going to affect the way we live our lives here on earth as we lived towards eternity? I'm going to show you a clip as we get going uh, this morning. It's from the movie Jaws. Nothing bloody or scary or anything like that. But Jaws, if you haven't seen it, uh, spoiler alert, it's about a killer shark. And uh, the scene that we're about to see is three men have gone out in search of the shark. Uh, they're going to hunt it down. And it's nighttime, and they're doing just some male bonding. And we're just going to look at that scene tonight.
0: Okay. Yeah. Don't well, you worry, about it, you? It won't be permanent. want to see something permanent? Boom, boom, boom. Hey who you, you wanna feel something permanent? Just put your hand underneath my cap. Just get a little lump. Knock on all on St. Patty's Day, Boston. I got that beat. I got that beat. Some moray eel. Fit right through my wetsuit. Well, nope, no, listen, I don't know about that, but I entered an arm wrestling contest in Loki Bar in San Francisco. You see this? Now I can't extend that. You know why? I got to the semifinal, celebrating my third wife's demise. Big Chinese fella, pull me right off. <laughs> taking samples. I got something That's the Thresher. You see that, Chief? Thresher's tail. Thresher? It's a shark. You want to drink? Drink to your leg. I'll drink to your leg. Okay, so we <laughs> drink <to> our legs.
1: <laughs> Man and their scars. I have seen that played out in real life, and there is a weird sort of pride. Uh, when you see a guy who's got a scar, and the reason for that, the reason that we are kind of proud of it, is every scar has a story, as it has been said. And it is a story of pain, and probably some pretty significant pain, if it's been big enough to leave a scar. And yet scars don't hurt anymore, right? Scars themselves don't hurt. So they serve as a testimony of pain that's been experienced, but pain that has been overcome. We don't carry the pain of it anymore. We're just left with these kind of badges of honor that say, I have suffered, and yet I have beaten it. I've suffered, and yet I'm still here. And it's kind of fun. I was at a men's group once where men were showing off their scars, and everyone had a story, and it was kind of like that scene. Everyone was trying to one-up everybody else. But everyone had a story, and the story was, I have suffered, but I have overcome. And in that sense, we're all a little bit like Jesus because we serve a God with scars, Jesus, as his resurrected self, still carries the wounds, the scars, of the crucifixion. They don't hurt anymore, but he still carries the marks of the suffering that he went through. And this makes Christianity so unique compared to most religions and philosophies in the world, is that we serve a God who is great and who is powerful and who is almighty and who is all-knowing and who has a sense of everything that's gone on from the beginning of creation and everything beforehand and afterwards and has all the power in the world to do whatever he wants by speaking a word. And yet this God came down in Jesus. And he walked with us through life in Jesus. And he suffered alongside us in Jesus. That we serve a God who has chosen willingly to come and suffer as he lived this life and as he went to the cross and still bears the marks of the suffering that he went through. That we serve a God with scars. And the Bible talks about suffering a fair bit, and we're often asking those types of questions related to suffering. We just sang about good, good Father. If God is so good, if the Father is so good, then why do we suffer? Why is there warfare? Why is there bloodshed? Why are lives sometimes cut short? Why do we bear sickness in our bodies? Why is there poverty? Why is there suffering if God is so good? And I don't know if the Bible gives a crystal clear answer necessarily, but I know what the Bible tells us for sure is that that good God, who didn't need to do this, came and suffered alongside us. And through his suffering, encountered suffering, encountered evil, and through his resurrection, overcame suffering and overcame evil, and then invites us to overcome with him. We serve a God with scars. And so as we go through this today, we're going to talk about suffering as it relates to eternity and those big questions that we have of the why. And I, as I walk with Jesus longer and as I look to his word more, I'm convinced suffering only makes sense in light of the cross and the resurrection and in light of eternity. And that's where suffering starts to make a little bit of sense. So let's take a look at our text today. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and we're starting in verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. There's a lot of faith in those verses there. And as we look at the world around us, we look at places like Syria and the war that's going on, and we see pictures of children suffering, and we see the the bloodshed and devastation, and we ask those questions of why. And and even as we ask those questions of why, uh, the challenge for us is what are we doing? right? As followers of Jesus, how are we alleviating suffering in the world if we really believe that we are the hands and feet of Jesus? So that is part of it. Um, But today we're talking about God's perspective of suffering. And so as we look to the why of these things, we understand that if this life is all that God has to offer, then it's incredibly unfair, Right? Because sometimes we suffer because we've done silly things and we're reaping the consequences of our choices, but sometimes we suffer through no fault of our own. Sometimes we suffer as innocents. We've done nothing whatsoever wrong, but we live in a world of brokenness and of sin and of evil. We live in a world where Satan uh, still has influence and he has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And so we live in this broken, fragmented world and suffering exists. But if this life is all that God has to offer, then it's incredibly unfair. But if this life isn't all God has to offer, if there is more available, and if there's more available where there is no suffering, then the the focus on this life shifts. Because if I live to be 150 years old, it's still going to be a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. right? That's where we will spend most of our existence. And so the suffering we go through in this life is always going to be temporary in light of eternity. And there is a good Father, a God of justice, who will make these things right. We acknowledge that the struggle is real. We don't need to sugarcoat it. We don't need to put on our fake Christian smiles and say everything is wonderful in our lives, because the Apostle doesn't do that in this passage. Verses 8 through 10, we're hard-pressed on every side, he says, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. I just love that he's just being honest. Life is hard sometimes. And sometimes we feel pressed and we feel crushed and we feel struck down and we feel confused and perplexed. That's the life that we live right now on this earth. And there's no fake, shiny Christianese attached to it. It's just, yeah, this is it. This is real. This is authentic. This is what life is like sometimes. I grew up in a tradition where Uh, it was very much a part of the Christian faith. They believe very strongly in the idea that the tongue has the power of life and death. And if you've been around church, you've heard that verse before from Proverbs. The tongue has the power of life and death, and it was very important that we speak words of life, and we don't speak words of death. We speak words that are full of faith and encouraging and life-giving. We don't speak words that are are critical or doubt-filled or negative. And that's a good thing. This is a very good thing, because we do believe our words are powerful. Our words can affect our attitude and our outlook. Look, our words obviously affect other people. And so, yes, we want to choose to speak life-giving words rather than words that, that tear down or, or sow doubt or discord. And where the teaching went off the rails in the tradition that I grew up in is in the, the quest to not speak words of death, as we called them, uh, it became synonymous with don't ever acknowledge anything wrong in your life. Because if you say something's wrong, then that might be a word of death, and maybe God won't hear your prayers. And so I remember so clearly, I think I've shared this story here before, coming up, we used to have prayer time at the altar after the service, and so I came up for prayer, and I was sick, and so I went up to a lady who was there, and I said, yeah, I'm just, I'm not feeling good. I'm sick, and so I would just like prayer. And she said, you're not sick. Don't speak that over yourself. And I said, I am sick. <coughs> like I, I'm not Doubting, I'm not doubting God, like I'm just acknowledging the reality that I, I feel sick today. Now, if I had said, I'm sick and I'm never gonna get better and God won't hear my prayers, that's moving into words of death territory, okay? But it's not wrong to acknowledge the suffering that we have, right? Paul does it in God's Word. Jesus did that in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not wrong to acknowledge the suffering that exists. That's just being real. That's just being honest. That's just being authentic. And so we don't want to sugarcoat things. We don't want to pretend that things are wonderful when they're not. We want to be honest about where we're at. We want to acknowledge problems where they exist. There was a lady in our first church, and she had hip pain. And uh, she was a nurse, so she knew something about how the body works, obviously. And so she went to her doctor, and she's like, oh, hip pain, it seems like inflammation. And the doctor took a look and said, okay, inflammation we will give you some painkillers, and hopefully that will help. And so it helped for a while, and then the pain got worse. And so she went back and said, oh, the inflammation's getting worse. All right, we'll try some stronger painkillers and some anti-inflammatories. And the painkillers helped for a while, but then it got worse. And so this went on for a couple of years, and they just kept upping the level of painkillers until the point where the painkillers weren't touching it anymore. And so she went back to her doctor, and he said, let's actually take a look at what's going on in there. And so they did their x-rays and their scans, and they said, oh, it's not inflammation at, at all. It's that all the, the cartilage and everything is worn away, so your bones are just grinding against bones. That's why it's so painful. And so now you're going to need a double hip replacement because so much grinding has gone on that we can't save this at this point. And so she had misdiagnosed and the doctor had misdiagnosed, which happens, but, uh, but the strategy of let's just cover up the pain was actually detrimental in the long run. The strategy of, we're just going to cover this up um, because that's, we're just going to treat the pain without treating the root, uh, ended up being a big problem. If they had caught it earlier, they might have been able to save it. And so she was, a, she was older, but she wasn't old enough to be ready for a double hip replacement. Uh, but that's where she found herself. And she would say to me afterwards, I just kept covering it up. I didn't actually deal with it. I just kept covering it up. You can apply this however you want in your life. There's all kinds of applications to it. But the, pro- the point is that she didn't acknowledge what was really going on. And we don't do ourselves any favors if we just pretend that everything's fine. We don't do ourselves any favors. And, and biblically, I think we're in error if we don't acknowledge these things. I love when you read the Psalms, just how real the psalmist is. The psalmist has no problem saying, God, my life sucks right now. Where are you in the middle of this? Where are you in my suffering? There's just so much authenticity And God's word is full of promises for us, and we cling to those promises throughout our lives, and we stand upon those promises, and we pray into those promises. And here's one of God's most faithful promises that He gives us In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus said. Anyone been blessed by that promise fulfilled in their lives? Jesus tells us, You will have trouble in this life. You will. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Hopefully not every moment of every day, but in this life you will have trouble. He lived a life where there was trouble and suffering. In this world you will have trouble, but if you know that phrase, you know that's not the end of the sentence, right? Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world take heart. This world, it's not forever. This world is not the end. Your suffering is not the end of the matter. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart because this world is being overcome. And that's the better part of the promise. That's where the hope comes from. And as Jesus came and entered into our suffering with us, again, I don't see this in other religions. I don't see this in other philosophies, that the God who didn't have to came down and suffered with us. He entered into our suffering. And whatever suffering you are going through, not your specific situation, but broadly, Jesus suffered in every way that we suffer. If you've ever been betrayed, Jesus was betrayed. If you've ever been abandoned, Jesus was abandoned. If you've lost a loved one prematurely, Jesus lost loved ones prematurely. If you've struggled financially, Jesus was poor. If you carry pain in your body, Jesus obviously carried pain in his body. If you've wondered, God, where are you? That was Jesus' cry on the cross. Wherever we have suffered, he has suffered with us. We don't have a God who's far away and distant and can't relate. We have a God who came as near as he possibly could We have a God who understands what we're going through. We have a God with scars who has suffered alongside us. And yet even that, even the cross is not where this ends. I remember growing up and we used to sing songs about, you know, the cross has said it all and the cross is the end. And preachers saying the cross is everything. It all wraps up around the cross. And I would say, no, 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 no. The cross is part one of a two-part epic. The cross is where our sin gets dealt with, where our suffering gets dealt with, but it's in the resurrection that everything gets beaten for good. It's in the resurrection that we are invited to triumph with Jesus. It's in the resurrection that we are invited to eternal life. The cross deals with our sin. The resurrection deals with our death. And as our death has been overcome, we know that when we engage God in eternity, all the suffering of this world won't matter anymore. Because we'll be in the place where there is no pain. We'll be in the place where everything is the way God intended it to be. We'll be in the place where he intended us to be as we live with him in eternity. And so we focus not just on the cross, but on the resurrection. Because Jesus right now isn't suffering anymore, right? His suffering is over as he sits at the right hand of God. He's got the scars still. He's got the badges of honor demonstrating what he's been through, but his suffering is over, and he invites us, come to the place where your suffering will be over. Come join me in this place where suffering is done. So we acknowledge that the struggle is real, but we also want to acknowledge that faith's response is real. That we make a mistake if we just pretend we're not struggling or suffering. We make a mistake if we just pretend that that everything is wonderful. But we also make a mistake if we wallow in our suffering. We also make a mistake if we just stay there because we believe in miracles and we believe in resurrection. We believe in healing. We believe in provision. And so in that faith, verse 13 of our text, Paul writes, "'It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak because we know the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself.'" And so faith comes in when suffering is there. Faith is right behind it, if we will let it come. And when the apostle's writing about his suffering, you maybe notice uh, he acknowledges the grace that's there for him. Right? We're hard-pressed, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, we're confused, but we're not despairing. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We're persecuted, but God is still with us. So he acknowledges in the suffering there is grace. And then he reframes suffering entirely in view of eternity. And he says, you know what? One way or another, at some point, God is going to raise us from the dead as well, and we will stand before Jesus, and we will be in eternity, and our suffering will be no more. And so we acknowledge that God looks after us and delivers us and provides for us, and yet we also acknowledge that one day that's going to happen on a whole other level. When we stand before him in eternity, we're going to be in the place where suffering won't matter anymore. So faith's response to suffering is, God will make this right in one way or another. Either in this life or in eternity, these things will be made right. And Jesus told us that if we were going to be followers of him, that we would need to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow after him. And that suggests suffering. That suggests that suffering will be a part of. The the cross in there suggests that there will be suffering, that Jesus had a particular path of suffering in his life that he had to take. And he says, if you're going to follow after me, you are also going to walk down that path. And when we talk about following Jesus, we tend to focus on the good stuff where we can, where I'm going to follow after him by... Loving others as best I can, and trying to fulfill his teachings, and trying to treat people the way he treated people, that's all crucial, and that's all important, but there is a path of suffering involved as well. Scripture calls Jesus the man of sorrows, and it's going to be hard for us to follow him and look like him if our life doesn't also contain some sorrows. And so as we walk after him, that will be a part of it. But again, uh, it's not the suffering that's the focus. It's not the cross that's the end of the matter because we know there is resurrection coming. We know that the cross and suffering is not the end of the story. And so as we look to eternity, uh, we know eternity is longer than the present. Thank you, Captain Obvious. But eternity is longer. We're spending most of our existence there. If I live to be 150, as we've been saying throughout this series, it's a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. And so we are wanting to live towards that, living with an eternal mindset. And so in light of suffering, Paul says this in verse 17, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory. They're achieving something for us in eternity, an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Everything we see right now in this life is temporary. It's all temporary, because this world and our lives here are going to pass away. And so we don't focus on what is temporary, Paul says. We focus on what is eternal. We focus on the eternal God. We focus on the eternal gospel. We focus on the eternal kingdom, where we will spend most of our existence, and we put our focus and our attention there. And I was so intrigued by the phrase, as I was preparing this message, "our light and momentary troubles. Because the Apostle Paul's life was not particularly trouble-free, if you know anything about him. And so in 2 Corinthians 11, he tells us what his life was like. These are his light and momentary troubles. He says, "...for the sake of the gospel, as an apostle, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently." been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. What a whiner. This was his life. And in all of those things, this is what he suffers to follow after Jesus. And we're not a persecuted nation, so it's maybe a bit hard for us to connect. But this is the life he lived. And he tells this list in 2 Corinthians 11 because people were questioning his credentials. They were questioning whether he had the right to call himself an apostle. And so instead of saying, well, you know why I can be called an apostle? Because I saw Jesus, and I got caught up into heaven, and I raised this person from the dead, and I performed all these miracles, and 80 million people got saved through, my ministry. He doesn't do any of that. When he's going to prove his credentials as an apostle, he says, here, these are my credentials. Look at how I've suffered for the cause of Christ. Tell me I'm not legit as an apostle of Jesus when I've been through all of this. And this list that he gives, and maybe that's not even all of it, is what Paul would call light and momentary troubles. And I was just intrigued by that. Like, the momentary part, sure, because we're, we're in the temporary life. But they don't seem like light troubles to me. A light beating with rods? A light shipwreck? Those don't seem like light things. And yet, again, what Paul is doing here is reframing everything in light of eternity. And in light of eternity, these things are light and momentary. They're temporary. In light of eternity, where we're going to spend most of our existence, he says these light and momentary issues that we're facing are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them. They are achieving for us something in heaven. There is reward coming for what we've been through. There is eternal reward, eternal glory coming for what we have gone through in this life, because God is just, and the God of justice will make these things right. In Hebrews 11, it's sometimes called the Hall of Faith, and there's a a listing of all the great heroes of the Old Testament from Abraham... Up to Jesus and heroes and prophets and kings, and it talks about all the things that they did by faith and all the ways that God met them by faith, and all the incredible miracles that happened by faith. and it's a story of God's deliverance over and over and over again. By faith, Isaac had a child, or sorry, Abraham had Isaac, uh, which he never should have had. he was too old. By faith, God brought Israel out of Egypt, and by faith, they parted the Red Seas, and by faith, God delivered some from the mouths of lions, and by faith, He helped them in battle, and by faith. They overcame all of these things. By faith, God has delivered his people when they cried out to him. And yet it also says, and then there were some who didn't get that deliverance. There were some who went to martyrdom. There were some who were tortured uh, because they were trying to do God's will. And he says that those who went through that, they did that knowing that they were achieving a better eternity. They embraced their suffering, knowing that eternity was going to be better because of what they suffered, because the God of justice was going to make it right. So I'm not suggesting that we settle into our suffering and and just kind of stay there and say, well, this is what there is and it'll be right in eternity. I think when we're suffering, we pray and we alleviate it for each other and we carry each other's burdens and we help each other out and we cry out to God for one another. And I have seen miracles happen. I have seen healings happen. I have seen divine providence happen over and over and over again. So I'm not suggesting just sit in your sufferings and, and wallow in them. I'm thinking whenever we're suffering, we are swinging for the fences in terms of looking for God's deliverance, and yet we also understand if it doesn't happen, I've got things in my body I'm praying for, chronic issues, if the healing doesn't come in this lifetime, God will make up for it in eternity, that suffering will be made right in eternity, because God is bringing us to the place where scripture says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. We believe God is good, which we do. If we believe God is just, which we do, we trust that either in this life or in eternity, God will make this right. But that redefines suffering for us. Because if all we're focused on is the here and now, suffering is going to seem unbearable. If we're focused on eternity, suffering becomes bearable. And as we mature, we can get to the point where Paul talks about where our suffering feels light and momentary, not because we're not real about it, but because we understand in light of eternity, we can get through this. And there will be grace like there was for Paul. We can be hard-pressed, but we won't be crushed. We can be struck down, but we won't be destroyed. There'll be grace for us in the middle of our suffering, and we will look to him for deliverance, and we will trust that he will make it right, either in this life or in the next. We have an email address here at meadowbrookquestions at meadowbrook.ca. If you have any questions on today's message, we would love to chat with you. If you have any comments, we would love to keep that conversation going. One more story just as we get ready to wrap up. There was a man in the 1800s. His name was Horatio, which is a great name. It's way better than Chris. And Horatio was a man who loved Jesus. And he was a lawyer, and he became very successful. And he became wealthy, and he began to invest in real estate all over Chicago, and he began to, to build an empire. And with his wealth, he poured tremendous money into charity. Uh, he would fund missionaries. He would fund preaching tours. He was good friends with Dwight Moody, uh, who was a preacher at the time, and he used to fund Dwight Moody to go and share the gospel all over the world. And so he was happy in his life, and he was loving Jesus and loving people. He was married to a wife who he adored, he had four daughters and a son. And then their son got sick. He was four years old. He got scarlet fever. And tragically, he died. And as they were dealing with the, the pain and the heartache of that, there is something you may have heard of. The Great Chicago Fire broke out in a time when everything was wood and packed close together. And huge portions of the city just burned to the ground, including almost all of his real estate dealings. His wealth disappeared in two days and he began to rebuild and recover from that. And as he got on his feet again uh, with his wife and four daughters, he said, let's go on a trip. We're, we're exhausted. We've been through a lot. Uh, Dwight Moody's preaching in England, and we've helped fund that. Why don't we go to England, and we can spend some time with him there. We'll get refreshed in our souls. And so as they were getting ready to go, there was a little bit of business that popped up, so Horatio said to his wife and daughters, you guys go, I'll catch up with you in a few days. And so the wife and daughters got on a ship and started crossing the ocean, and they rammed into another ship in the middle of the ocean, and the ship went down. And they found the wife a couple of days later. She was clinging unconscious to a piece of wood. Uh, The four daughters had gone down with the ship. And so Horatio had heard of this, and he was frantically waiting for news. Uh, back in America, he got to the East Coast and got ready to get on a ship, and he received a telegram from his wife there that simply said, Saved alone. What shall I do? And so he wired back, said, Stay there. I will come and get you. I'm coming to England. And so he got on a ship and started across cross the ocean, and he had asked the captain of the ship, he said, Can you let me know when we're roughly in the area where the accident happened. Can you just let me know? Uh, I I need to know where that is. And so the captain came and said, we're about at the the longitude and latitude of where this happened. And so Horatio went up, and he stood on the deck of the ship, and he looked into the waters, and he saw the waves, and no doubt asking why. No doubt in that place. And as he stood there, he had a, a moment of revelation. He believed the Holy Spirit spoke to him in that moment. And so he went back to his cabin and he had some stationery from the hotel he had stayed at the night before as he was waiting for his ship. And so he scribbled down the words that that he was feeling in that moment. He scribbled them down on the hotel stationery. That's actually it right there. It's a bit hard to read. So what he wrote down was, When peace like a river attendeth my way, When sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. So you know that hymn if you've been around church for a while. And I wager you'll look at it differently now, that you know some of that backstory. In the midst of his suffering, unimaginable suffering, right? Who here can our suffering compare to what he's gone through? But in the middle of that suffering, faith rose up, Hope rose up, and if you go through the rest of the hymn, he ties it back into the cross, which beat our sin. He ties it back into the return of Jesus, where everything will be made right because God is good and God is just, and he has promised us he will make these things right. And in the meantime, we let faith rise up, and we let hope rise up, and we encourage faith and hope in each other. And when our brothers and sisters are suffering, we come alongside them because Scripture says, bear one another's burdens. When you do that, you fulfill the law of Jesus. And we become a place of hope for the rest of the world as well as we step into these things. And one of the reasons we come together on Sunday is to stir up our faith and to stir up our hope. And as we consider our suffering, we know that this life is not it. We know this is not the end. We know that everything will be overcome because Jesus has already overcome. And he has invited us to overcome with him, either in this life or in eternity. But either way, we will stand upon his promises. and We will stand upon faith and hope. So as we get ready to close, we're going to sing. We sang it already today, Good, Good Father. And it's a good one to end on because we don't just worship when we feel like it. Uh, We worship because God is always good. And sometimes it's in the suffering where it's the hardest time to worship. And yet, out of faith and out of hope, we worship and we declare God's goodness, even in the midst of our suffering. Would you stand with me, please?
0: You know, as we think about this idea of suffering, uh, we've gone through it. We will go through it in our lives and as you're in it today as you're suffering through something whether it's financial or relationally or something else when you're in it it's hard and we get that we understand that and so does god he gets that 100 percent. so as you're in it don't minimize what you're going through because it's real to you but we want to encourage you to know as you look at life through the lens of eternity that what you're going through shall pass and you'll get through because of who god is and god is a good good father and let's be reminded of that today. Now, I love what Scripture says about this idea of suffering. And I'll read this to you out of Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from a love of God that is in Jesus Christ. I pray that encourages you today. I pray that challenges you as well. But as as you go through suffering, please know this as well. You're not alone in this. We're here to pray with you. We're here to walk with you. So if you need that this morning, come forward. We'd love to encourage you and pray with you and let you know we're in this together. Let's pray. Jesus, we know life is hard, and we recognize that we don't have the answers, but you do, and we're grateful for that. And so, Father, I pray today that you would give strength where strength is needed. You'd give peace and hope where it's needed. I thank you that, Jesus, you suffered for us. And as we look at suffering in our life, whatever that looks like, help us through your Holy Spirit to look at it through the eyes of eternity. God, in the moment we're in today, I pray that you provide what we all need. And for those folks who have come here today with a very heavy heart, whether it's something physical or emotional or spiritual that they're going through, I pray in Jesus' name you'd release them, that you'd encourage them, and that they would not leave today without feeling encouraged by your Holy Spirit and by the community of people here. So Lord, we commit this week to you, we ask you would just teach us and grow us and walk with us. And Jesus, thank you again that the cross is empty. You said no to death and that you love every single person in this room, in this city, and in the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we're glad you came to this morning. If you need someone to pray with, some of us will be available. Have a great week.